All right. Welcome to Opportuna Obscura. I'm Karen. And I am Casey. And this is a bonus episode where two friends talk about current events and weird things they've just learned. So who wants to go first? Uh, You can go first if you want. So, according to CNN journalist John Blake, quote, Whenever there is a massive tragedy, such as a pandemic, a war, or a natural disaster, there is a corresponding surge in reports of people seeing the dead or trying to contact them. Okay, I didn't know we were going this direction. Oh, yeah. This is from an article titled, They Lost Their Loved Ones to COVID, Then They Heard From Them Again. The article showcases the experience of radio DJ Ian Horn, who lost his wife Michelle to COVID. He claims that one morning, not long after she passed, on his way to work in the darkness before dawn, the streetlights along the highway turned purple, Michelle's favorite color. Ian reported feeling overwhelmed with the feeling that Michelle was near. Others have reported, quote, Relatives appearing in hyper-real dreams, a sudden whiff of fragrance worn by the departed loved one, or unusual behavior by animals. Other encounters are more dramatic, feeling a touch on your shoulder at night, hearing a sudden warning from a loved one, or seeing the full-bodied form of a recently departed relative appear at the foot of your bed. Mm. I I don't know how I feel about being visited like that. Oh, so you've never experienced anything like that? No, and I don't think I want it. Ah, so I was going to ask you if you had ever experienced anything like that, and um, I have. Well, okay, so the first time I ever experienced it it was after Dugan, my chihuahua who followed me from childhood home to college, to both my parents' homes after they split, to both my rented apartments and finally into the house I lived in right before this place. Right after he died of having a heart too big for his tiny, tiny body, I would see him out of the corner of my eye all the time. Oh, well, I've seen that. I've had that kind of experience. I haven't had, I haven't woken up and someone's been on the corner, like at the edge of my bed being like, hey, what's up? Long time no talk. (laughs) I would not like that either. And then this other time after, like the morning after my Aunt Kathy passed, my mom and I were standing at my kitchen window and a hummingbird, which was my Aunt Kathy's favorite animal, lingered by a flower while my mom and I just like felt distinctly that she was there with us. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's possible that our loved ones are still around in spirit form for a while after they pass, but I think it's also possible that they're just on our minds and we're looking for them in everything to deal with the pain of losing them. Could be. Yeah. Are you going to make this another dark episode? No, I've got like two really funny ones after this. Okay, good. Because mine is terrifying. Oh. Fascinating. Not really depressing. Only a couple people died. Oh my god! Only a few. <laughs> I mean, it's it's sad that people died, but it could have been way worse. But we will we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. All right. So, do you want to share one, or should I keep going? Are you done? Is that the end of that article? Yeah, that's the end of that one. Okay. Well, I'll give it a go. So, I only have one article, and it's kind of long. Okay. And I think I have heard of this before, but it might have like gone in one ear and out the other because I never thought it was. I just couldn't believe it. But apparently it's a thing. So this is from Business Insider. And the title of the article is A thermonuclear bomb slammed into a North Carolina farm in 1961. And part of it is still missing. Missing? Missing by David Mosher. This was published in 2017. And to my knowledge, 
it's still missing. This is what happened. In 1961, a nuclear bomber, so a B-2, broke up over North Carolina farmland. And while that was happening, two of the nuclear bombs that it was carrying fell out of the plane. Well, actually, I guess they're technically called hydrogen bombs, but they're also referred to as nuclear bombs. I thought hydrogen and nuclear bombs were two separate things, but I'm not a bomb expert. Me neither. Could honestly could say a peroxide bomb and i'd be like sure (laughs) watch out for your hair you're gonna be blonde soon um so (laughs) neither of the bombs detonated and the military was able to recover one of the bombs but they were never able to fully recover the second part of the bomb because it was so big and heavy that it's buried 200 feet down deep in the mud and dirt of this farmland in north carolina so it's just like 200 feet underground, probably. Correct. But it's a nuclear bomb chilling in the farmland. So by nuclear, we mean like mushroom cloud, right? Yes. Like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. Why um, did we drop a bomb on ourselves? I'll get into it. So now I'm going to read you parts of the article. It's kind of a longer article, and I'll fill you in with what I've learned to kind of move it forward. So I'm not just reading you this article for... 20 minutes. Okay. Quoting the article, disaster struck early in the morning of January 24th, 1961, as eight servicemen in a nuclear bomber were patrolling the skies near Goldsboro, North Carolina. They were an insurance policy against a surprise nuclear attack by Russia on the United States. This unalert crew was expected to basically survive the initial attack, and then they would be the ones responding with these two nuclear weapons that were on, on their jet. That's me paraphrasing. Okay. These bombs were Mark 39 thermonuclear bombs, and they were 12 feet long, and they weighed more than 6,200 pounds, and they could detonate with the energy of 3.8 million tons of TNT. That is... 3.8 million tons. That is dense. Basically, according to this article, it could kill everything within the DC beltway. So anything within 495 would be destroyed by just one of these bombs. Jesus. That is huge. On that fateful day, the plane took off and it broke up at about 2,000 feet from the ground. While that happened, the two bombs were, well, I'm about to get to it. So backtracking a little bit. What happened here was officially called a broken arrow. And that is the military term for when a nuclear weapon is, like there's an accident around a nuclear weapon. A broken arrow? A broken arrow. Guess how many broken arrows there have been since 1950? I don't know. 32. There have been 32 mishaps with nuclear warheads since 1950. That is too many. That's like one every other year. What the fuck? Do you think they would be a little bit more careful with those things? Yeah, you would think. Especially if you're flying over the United States. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's not okay anywhere, but like, why would you... Like, <laughs> It's not like they're shooting blanks. So why did the bomber crash? Well, they had a fuel leak, like random. They called it a mysterious fuel leak. So I don't know what actually caused it. I'm sure if I dove further into it, which I didn't, (laughs) I might find a cause for it. Mm -hmm. But the crew found out the fuel leak and it basically like went from bad to worse really quickly. And the jet bomber lost the tail. I don't know how a fuel leak would lose the tail of the plane. Again, I did not dive into it. I probably will at some point because it's really interesting, but I just found this article today. I was going to cover something else, but this seemed way more interesting. Because of the fuel leak, the bomber spun out of control and they lost control of its 
of their bomb bay doors. Bomb bay doors? Yeah. Bomb, as in B-O-M-B, space, bay. Oh, as in like a okay. Yeah. It wasn't a bomb bay door in the back of the B-2. It was at this point that the two megaton nuclear bombs fell out of the plane. <laughs> oh, my God. Nope. Yep. And then the plane crashed nose first into a tobacco field um, not too far away from the city of Goldsboro, North Carolina, and about 60 miles east of Raleigh, North Carolina. So now we have two nuclear bombs that fell outside of a densely populated area <laughs> in North Carolina. That's... um. So was anybody hurt? So I'll, I'll get to it. Some people on the plane didn't make it, but no one actually died from the bombs. And I'll explain why in a moment. Okay. So one bomb safely parachuted to the ground and it snagged on a tree. So imagine you're out hiking. You just look up. There's a <laughs> 6,000 pound nuclear bomb chilling in a tree above you. First of all, that is one tough tree. Yeah, that's a really strong ass tree. Especially since it got, like, you know, it hit. I mean, you're coming down with a parachute, but you still have some force behind it. Yeah. So that bomb was found easily, and people inspected it, made sure it was, like, good for travel, and they moved it and put it on a truck and took it away. But the second bomb, the parachute failed. Of course it did. So we've got a 6,000-plus pound bomb, 12 feet long, 12 feet long, just completely, you know, unstoppable, falling from the sky. And it slammed into this muddy, swampy part of one of the farming fields. And it broke into a few different pieces. So, like, that's good. It's broken. It didn't detonate, right? I guess. But could it still? I'll address that in a second. (laughs) Oh, no. It took the recovery team um, several, well, no, I think about a week to find the bomb and most of its parts. So The important parts? We'll get to it. So, Jesus Christ. So upon inspection of the bomb that was unaided when it fell to the, the ground, the military found that six of the seven steps to blow up one of them had engaged. So there were seven steps apparently to get a nuclear bomb of this type to explode. Uh-huh. And six of the seven one six of the seven had been activated. So we were one step away from blowing up North Carolina. Uh that's not good. <laughs> yeah, the bomb was actually also set to arm. I don't know if you need to set it to arm to transport it, but it was set to arm and yet somehow also failed to detonate. I think maybe arm might be one of the steps. I don't know how bombs work. So are these steps things that can just like happen or are they things that humans have to make happen? Probably a little bit of both. Mm. But again, I don't know how bombs work. Okay. This isn't like them lighting a match and making a run for it. Like, it's a nuclear bomb. Yeah, I have no idea how that works, especially back then. Because I'd imagine now there's, like, some sort of, like... Computer thing? Yeah. That you just, like, push a button and you're, like, bang. Yeah. So, according to a declassified 1963 memo by Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense at the time, he said, It was the slightest margin of chance, literally the failure of two wires to cross, that a nuclear explosion was averted. Wow. So, I don't know if these were, like, defective bombs that these guys were flying around with, or if someone did something to the bomb before, like, the failure of the airplane Mm. to make sure if they crashed, they wouldn't explode. Wow. So had the bomb detonated, and I don't know if the detonation of one bomb would have caused the detonation of the other bomb that was close by. I imagine it would, though. I have no idea. 
Explosive materials activating other explosive materials? I mean, you would think, but I don't know how, like, it's like a nuclear reaction. So, like, what if it's the outer shell of the bomb thing, like, stops it from happening? Maybe. I don't know. So had it detonated, lethal fallout could have gone as far as Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, and as far north as New York City. Jesus Christ. Yeah, which would have put millions at risk because, as we know, a nuclear bomb is not great for your health even after the detonation. No, we probably wouldn't be here. Yeah, you would still have to deal with radiation. Our parents would have been sterilized. Well, my parents would have been in New York at that point. Oh, mine were in Baltimore, so. Yeah. Actually, what year was this again? 1963. Yeah, they were both in Baltimore. No, 1961, sorry. Yeah, my dad was like six. My mom was 11. Yeah, well, think about all the things that would have changed had this actually happened. Yeah, it would have been super, super different. Yeah. So what was not recovered? The thermonuclear core. So, like, where the uranium is stored? I don't know what they hold, and I probably should have looked into it more before I decided to cover this, but I was like, F it. I'm imagining if it's a thermonuclear, it's got, like, the the juice. The bomb juice. Somebody has definitely found that and sold it to her enemies. It's 200 feet under the ground, Karen. That's not that far. Well, I also read another article that it said that the government kind of like fenced off the area and like called it a day when they couldn't recover the thermonuclear core. I imagine someone has got to be looking over this. I mean, yeah. please God, let someone be like just checking in every now and then making sure no one's drilling for a thermonuclear core. Yeah. So apparently each bomb was a thermonuclear design. So instead of just having one nuclear core, these weapons had two. So I think they recovered one of them and they did not recover the other. Okay. And the way this works, and I'm going to go back to quoting directly from the article because I don't know how to explain this to anybody. In the moments after the first core, called a primary, explodes, it releases a torrent of X-ray and other radiation. This radiation reflects off of the inside of the bomb casing, which acts as a mirror to focus it on and set off the secondary core. That one-two punch compounds the efficiency and explosive power of a nuclear blast. So I guess we do know how bombs work now. So while the U.S. recovered the entire Goldsboro bomb that hung from the tree, the second bomb still has the secondary core somewhere in the ground of North Carolina. All right. So win for the swamp. I mean, maybe we should be looking for, like, two-headed toads. Well, it's funny you say that, because the second core is mostly made of uranium-238, which is common and not weapons-grade material, but can still be deadly inside a thermonuclear weapon. Oh, interesting. So the individual who wrote this article reached out to the Department of Defense to learn about what's going on with this missing secondary, and the Department of Defense said, we currently don't have anything going on with this site. So we're not even looking for it, and we're not planning on trying to look for it. We have given up. But they also would not confirm if the secondary was still there. So there's the potential that they might have gone in and got it, but I have a feeling they haven't, and it's probably still there. I mean, if they did, why wouldn't they just be like, yeah, we got it, it's fine, everything's fine. Yeah. Oh, I need to take it back. They did not fence it off, so that like headline I read was not a thing. Apparently, the area is not marked or fenced and is currently being farmed. So they just, like, put soil back over top of it and they were like, yeah, this is a great place to grow some organic corn. So they don't allow any kind of buildings to be built over that allotment of land, (laughs) Uh, 400 feet kind of a diameter around where the nuclear bomb landed. But farming is okay. 
I mean, if it's tobacco, I mean, the people who are using it should already know that it's bad for them. So, But anyway, the government basically says there's, you know, not much to worry about. I mean, it's not great to have a nuclear weapon or part of a nuclear weapon just out there in the world, but no one should lose sleep about it. Direct quote. Mm. That kind of reminds me of a story my dad told me about when he was a kid. He and his brothers found like a box of bullets and decided to, or buckshot or something, and decided to throw it into a fire. And like one of them shot him in the leg. And Mm. like it was just there for like a decade until like it festered at some point and then they had to get it removed. But like they weren't going to tell their parents because... So my dad basically got shot in the leg when he was probably like 12 years old. And uh, yeah, they just didn't tell their parents. (laughs) So people have asked the government, hey, is there, you know, again, is there anything that you were concerned about as far as like people stealing this uh, and creating a deadly weapon? And they're like, well, you know, you can't really create a nuclear bomb from scratch. You need the, the, the first part of it, primary. And if you only have the secondary, you still, you know, you can't do much damage. So they're like, you know, don't really worry about it. All right. And apparently there's also no secret about where this weapon is located because you can pretty much Google it. So I guess this is not a national security risk. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, that's the uh, the nuclear warhead that is currently buried in a North Carolina swamp. And I came across this in a listicle. I was initially going to go, like, do something more historical, but then I saw this and I was like, okay, wait a second. I need to tell Karen about (laughs) the fact that there's part of a nuclear bomb in a swamp in North Carolina and nobody seems to care. Yeah, I guess nobody cares. Yeah, cool. All right, so this is from an article titled Cape Cod Fisherman OK After Whale Gulps Him Down and Spits Him Out. Oh, I've heard about this. <laughs> Damn it. Well, anyway. I didn't read the article. I didn't read the article. I don't know what happens. All I know is that he was in the hospital because, you know, whales can't actually... Okay, I'll let you get to yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Earlier this month, which is June 2021, for those who are listening to this in the future, Michael Packard reported on Facebook that he was lobster diving when a humpback whale tried to eat him. The whale opened its mouth and closed it around the fisherman. 30 to 40 seconds later, the whale spit him out. He thought he was going to die, as we all would, but it turns out he was fine, and he actually had no broken bones. Well, I mean, they don't have teeth. The whale likely didn't realize that Packard wasn't a school of fish. No, they have like, um, like those bony things. I don't know. There's no way I can describe this. They're like filters for fish and like whatever plankton or whatever it may be. Yeah, that's right. So the whale likely didn't realize that Packard wasn't a school of fish. I mean, the guy was hanging out at the bottom of the ocean, just like a fish would, so the mistake is understandable. (laughs) Humpbacks are not likely to eat humans, and according to the article, humpbacks have a history of being altruistic toward humans. It's likely the whale of this tale was displaying that very trait because Packard reported that the whale brought him to the surface to spit him out. Aw, that's kind. Isn't it? It's cute. I like that whale. That's all I got about that. Oh, okay. That was a quick one. Oh, yeah. Do you want me to go right into my next one? Because I don't have anything else. All right. Well, so this one is ridiculous. And so if you've listened to the the railroads episode, you will know that I didn't really cover something close to a railroad. No, not at all, really. (laughs) I didn't even know what happened. I was very confused. (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's all because of this article, which so I found this article while perusing newspapers.com and I just like Googled like rail passenger missing. Oh, you were going to go for a mysterious disappearance? Yes, I was trying so hard to find one and I could not find one. But I did find this article, which led me to Pittsburgh, which then led me to the strike. So here we are in Pittsburgh. The title of this article is What Befell a Streetcar? Here we go again. Going back to the streetcars. Stella! Yes. So this is from the Pittsburgh Gazette, Saturday, April 23rd, 1864. So taking it back. Mm -hmm. A car was chartered on the Oakland Passenger Railway on Thursday night, to convey a party of ladies and gentlemen from the light gymnastics exhibition at Concert Hall. The car was crowded with men, women, and children who, while pleasantly proceeding on their journey, were startled by a loud report resembling that of a musket shot. It was supposed that some miscreant had fired at the car, as the noise was unmistakably in close proximity. An athletic passenger, determining to ascertain, if possible, who did the mischief, rushed out and seized a couple of men who stood in the street. The watchmen were called, a crowd collected, and a serious disturbance seemed imminent. But the suspected parties, having been identified as two well-known gentlemen of respectability and character, were released. The passengers collected, and the car proceeded on its journey. They had gone but a short distance when another shot was heard. And the athletic gentleman, above alluded, to sprang from the platform of the car so suddenly that it was feared he had been shot. The driver felt the force of the explosion, which so terrified him that he fled and left the horses unguarded. So this was a vehicle pulled by horses. The women and hmm, okay. yeah, <laughs> the women and children rushed from the car, and a scene of the wildest confusion followed. A couple of men who approached the car were seized by our stalwart friend who had not been injured as was supposed. These men, like the first couple, were respectable citizens residing in the neighborhood. And of course, they did not relish the treatment they had been subjected, alleging that they had supposed someone in the car had fired the shot, and their object was to see the extent of the injury. I have a question. Uh -huh. Did the individual who wrote this article go on to start writing, like, uh, mystery novels and... <laughs> screenplays because this is very in-depth i certainly hope so um <laughs> but i found no author oh yeah okay otherwise i would have said but yeah no there was no author so it goes on a well-known county official who was in the car also became pugilistic which is a word i had to look it up and a general row <laughs> seemed unavoidable the watchmen were called up to do their duty but they did not know what to do, as there was no evidence to show who did the shooting. When quiet was restored and the parties began to compare notes, it was clear that the explosion took place under the front platform of the car. An examination was then made, which resulted in a complete solution to the mystery. Some reckless joker had placed rail railroid... <laughs> hemroid... <laughs> railroid... <laughs> Okay, so, some, <laughs> some reckless joker had placed railroad torpedoes on the track, and it was these was that? that had exploded and spread consternation among the passengers. These torpedoes are very large and are used by railroad engineers when one train falls so far behind time that the following train is in danger of running into it. They are placed on the track to warn the engineer following that there is danger ahead. The explosion is very loud, mm -hmm. 
and it is no wonder that the passengers had become frightened. Yeah, I mean, I'd be scared shitless too. So, a little child was lost in the confusion and was found after considerable searching on one of the cross streets. A lady passenger disappeared and could not be found at all. <laughs> That's me. I'm like, I'm out. Peace out. You figure it out. Where'd she go? I don't know. I don't know where she went. She turned up the next morning, however, and stated that she had taken refuge at a house in the vicinity where she remained all night. The feelings of the passengers may be imagined. Mm -hmm. Upon making the discovery, the circumstance will afford them gossip and amusement for a month to come. Just a month. In order to guard against torpedoes, two, <laughs> two parties were sent ahead to reconnoiter the track, do some reconnaissance <laughs> on the track, and thus the journey was completed. It may perhaps be well to state that nice. this affair is not regarded in the light of a harmless joke, as the consequences might have been very serious had the horses taken fright. A gentleman offers yeah. a reward of $20 for information that will lead to the arrest of the party who placed the torpedoes on the track. The end. Yes, so thank you for listening. This was Opportuna Obscura. I am Karen. And I'm Casey. <laughs> and uh, thanks for listening. And as always, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us at eothepodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at eothepodcast. That's our Twitter handle. And we also have an Instagram. So please come join us for the chaos that our Instagram posts are at Encyclopedia Obscura. Bye. Bye. -bye.